This is the podcast for Woodland Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. We are maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. We hope you enjoy the message, and if you'd like to learn more about our church, look us up at woodlandpres.org. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. You know, we're a Presbyterian church, right? Does anyone know how to spell Presbyterian? Sometimes when when I say, where do you work? I have to say Woodland Presbyterian, and they say, can you spell that for me? And I always have to remember how to do it. But what's being Presbyterian? What does that mean, right? It, it means that we are led uh, by elders. Uh, the word presbytery, uh, presbyteros means elder. And so we are led by uh, men and women who have been called to serve in this local body uh, and to serve us. And we've seen that, right? Will Stewart is an elder. He's leading us in worship. Corey is an elder, is leading us in worship. Uh, and we're just thankful that we have Men and women that, that say we're going to serve. So this weekend coming up, we have a Presbyterian meeting, and there are a couple elders that are going to be traveling with me to, uh, to Montgomery, Alabama, and we're going to have a meeting there to gather with other elders from our, our local churches. And so that's a blessing uh, to be able to do that. And we're part of a Presbytery, the Central South Presbytery. And so uh, if, I'm, if I'm out, I can call upon other men and women in our presbytery to come and preach and to share the word with you, and that's a huge blessing. And one of, the, one of my friends in the presbytery, a guy that I've known for about 10 years, is uh, Josh Smith from St. Patrick uh, Church. It's not St. Patrick's, St. Patrick, and he's a great guy. He's funny, and he's well-spoken, and he's going to come and share with us next weekend on Mission Sunday uh, this idea that feasting is kingdom work. And so I know in the next 30 minutes or so, you're going to start uh, getting hungry, and you're going to be thinking about, where am I going to go to lunch? And that's all a plan that we've got to make, right? And so what Josh is going to talk about in some way is how do we gather at tables with hospitality uh, to do mission? What does it look like for us to use uh, the table as an extension of the table where we gather as uh, members of the church to participate in the Lord's Supper? How do we extend that ministry of relationship and hospitality through the table at a restaurant or in our home? How do we celebrate what God is doing and feast and enjoy? So I just want to encourage you next week uh, to be here to listen to Josh on Mission Sunday. It's always an opportunity for us to be reminded that mission isn't just one Sunday. Uh, we'll have a, uh, all of our flags of all the countries where we've been, we've been serving and just being reminded of the call for each of us to do mission. And we've had church planters come, and we've had disciple makers and evangelists, and so this is going to be a different approach to Mission Sunday, but I think you're going to be blessed by it, uh, and so I want to encourage you just to be here next Sunday. We're going to continue this morning in our sermon series on 1 Corinthians, uh, this letter that Paul has written to his friends in Corinth, right? Remember, Paul helped to establish this church. These are people that he loves. He's wanting to encourage them. They've faced uh, different kinds of challenges because they're living in this cosmopolitan city with uh, commercial wealth uh, and then also in the shadow of a temple that is uh, idol worship and there's this massive amount of sexual immorality happening in the culture. And so Paul is writing this letter to encourage them uh, to be a community of faith that love Jesus, that love each other, that are trying to be a witness for Christ in their world. So that sounds kind of familiar to us, doesn't it, compared to the world that we live in, the city that we live in, right? Memphis is a city on the water, uh, the river. It's a city of commerce. Uh, It's a city of um, affluence in some ways, in some places, not so much in others. Uh, they have the, we have the same tension that probably the city of Corinth did. And the culture in which we live, in many ways, is similar. And so as we're listening to what Paul is saying to the Corinthians, uh, 
we want to be thinking about what is God saying to us? What is he saying to us about what it means to live as a community, as a fellowship, as a family, with all of our differences, with all of the maybe sometimes the disagreements that we might have? What does it look like for us to live in community with one another, to live in communion with one another? And so he takes this opportunity in the second half of chapter 11 to talk about community using the image of the Lord's Supper, the table, where people gather as brothers and sisters in Christ. So that's what we're looking at uh, this morning. I invite you, if you're able, to please stand for the reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 26. This is the Word of God. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word of God for the people of God. may be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word that uh, reminds us of the story of your people with all of its brokenness and struggle and challenge, uh, that your grace is real and and present. And as we reflect, Lord, on these words that are very familiar to us, that we hear at least once a month when we participate in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, may these words speak to us about what it means to be the church together. Not that only we would love each other, but that we would also bear witness to the love of the Trinity, the love of community that we show forth through our lives and through our witness as a community. So help us, God, to remember who you are and to be able to apply what it is that you're saying to us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Timothy Leary was a psychologist who became famous for experimenting with LSD. How many of you know who Timothy Leary is? <laughs> Good. Care if I was going to see if anyone raised their hand real fast? We find out true confessions here. He was experimenting with LSD as a way to promote social interaction and to raise consciousness. He did a lot of experience on volunteers and himself, and he uh, he felt that the drug had many positive qualities if taken correctly. But then the government cracked down on LSD, and his experiments were stopped, and he was arrested on drug charges. In 1969, 
Leary decided to run for governor of California, not president, as I mentioned earlier, the governor of California. And he asked someone to write a song for him for his campaign. That someone was John Lennon. John Lennon wrote a song called Come Together, Join the Party. It was Leary's campaign slogan with this reference to the drug culture that he supported and was the original title of the song that the Beatles later did, which we know as Come Together. Now, Leary never had much of a campaign, unfortunately, I don't know. But the slogan gave Lennon this idea for this song, Come Together. And if you've listened to the lyrics, you realize there's a lot of gibberish in there. I think maybe Lennon was on LSD when he wrote it. I don't know. I can't say for sure. And I don't totally know what Timothy Leary was getting at. And I don't totally know what John Lennon meant when he was saying, Come Together. But I knew, though, I know, though, that Paul thinks that coming together is a really important thing. You know, I can tell because he says that phrase, it's actually one word, he says it three times in the first four verses of this section. Now, there's no magical numeration of the Bible, but we can tell if a writer is emphasizing an idea if they keep repeating it. And so if we see the same phrase or the same word over and over again, we want to know that the author is wanting to make a really important point to his audience. And so those of us who are Bible students, which is everybody who can hear my voice, we want to pay attention. If someone's saying come together, then we've got to be thinking about this is an important idea that we want to be attuned to. We want to be paying attention to. You see, coming together is that opportunity for the body of Christ to be present. Not only in the presence of God, but to be present with each other. It's the regular rhythm of connecting and embracing and, and uh, sharing face-to-face and learning what it means to be a family, learning what it means to be a body, to be the bride of Christ, to be the people of God. And we, we recognize how difficult it is to be on mission and on a journey with God when we can't be together, right? We, we realize that, I mean, think about this, three years ago, we weren't here on Sunday. We were online if we were on anything. And that was, we're thankful for that opportunity and we still extend it because we know there are people that just can't be with us for various reasons. But it's not the same. It's not the same because even though you can hear an amazing sermon and awesome music, you don't get to hang out with each other before and after and check in and say, how's it going? What's going on with you? How was your week? How'd that thing go that you were talking about? that you said you needed prayer for, what's happening in your life. This connection, this opportunity to be together, it's this reminder that we're not alone in the world. It's not just you journeying through life, that you're part of a community. This coming together is an opportunity for us to be encouraged by others who are on this same faith journey. Some people who are a little farther along, maybe in life, or in faith, and they can say, hey, let me just share with you how I handled that situation. I don't know if this is helpful for you or not, but when I was in that moment in my life, this was really encouraging to me. Or it's an opportunity for you to do the same thing for someone else, just to say, you know, can I just give you a a word of encouragement just to keep going? I was talking with Doug this morning, and we were talking about children and the moments that you have when you have little kids, and sometimes it just feels like it's crazy, uh, we had two people go into formals yesterday. I had two boys doing pressure washing jobs in different places in the city. I had two soccer games going on yesterday. I have a game that starts at 11.30 right now at Micro Soccer, my team. 
There's a lot going on. And Doug was, he said, don't, don't blink. Just enjoy it. It was a reminder just to enjoy every moment. It was an encouraging word, so thank you for sharing with that. And I had, wouldn't have had it if I wasn't standing back there. I'm glad that Russell did the announcements, right? These opportunities that we get just to be together, they're so important for us. It's a, sh- it's a time to share what God is doing in our lives. It's a time to remember who Jesus is for us to each other. It's a time to be challenged, to be thinking about what God's Word says, and to be confronted with our own brokenness. And then to remember the glory of the grace of God that covers us and encourages us. You see, you can't really learn about that and experience that when you're watching it online, although there is some benefit. And don't get me wrong, listen to the podcast if you can't come to church because you can be connected to the Word. But there's this sense of being together, coming together around God's Word to rehearse and remember the great story that God is telling for all history, what it means for us to live out Jesus' disciples, as his disciples. And this is what the Corinthians were doing regularly. They were gathering for fellowship, instruction, worship, service. And think about this in the first century. Your church family was also likely many of the people in your blood family. right? It could have been all of the members in your household or your oikos. It could have been all the members of your family, your aunts and uncles and cousins and grandparents. It could have been all the people in your guild. Right? All the craftsmen, all the stone workers, all the fishermen. Because you spent a lot of time with them. Community was so close-knit that you, could, you didn't drive across town and go to the other church. You were a church with your people. You were doing life with them regularly and then gathering for worship. So you're deeply connected in relationship. And so as the gospel begins to spread all throughout the Mediterranean into cities like Corinth and Philippi, then other people are coming to faith. And so and we often think about this is that a person experiences Jesus and then they leave their community and they enter into a church. And that does happen. But in this context, what likely happens is that the word entered into that family, into that community, and the gospel spread through that family. So instead of one person from a family joining a church, the church essentially became into... He became part of that family. People began to understand who Jesus was. And if you look at the book of Acts, it's really interesting. Because there's about 33, maybe, salvations that occur in the book of Acts, and only three of them are individuals. Most of the time, it's a whole family. Think about Lydia. She comes to faith, and it's her whole household. The Philippian jailer, he comes to faith, and it's his whole household. So there's a sense that the gospel penetrates and permeates the communities that already exist, and then those people then learn how to follow Jesus as a family. So there's this sense that it's different than the world that we live in today because we live in the most individualized culture that's ever existed. We live in a world that is very different from the first century. And so as we're listening into what Paul says, we've got to make cultural adjustments because our world is really different, right? Think about this. You can, you can live wherever you want. I mean, in Memphis, lots of people have grown up here. But lots of people have left. And lots of people have come in. And it's easy for a person to do. You can just say, I'm, I'm moving to Nashville. No, don't do it. You can. You can go anywhere you want to go. And when you get there, you can tell everybody you're a different kind of person. If you want to reinvent yourself, 
You know, I used to go by Matt. Now I'm going by Eric now. That's my middle name. Just call me Eric. And no one would know any better until your friends from high school come and go, Matt, and they're like, who, who are you? And in the world today, you can, you can be a different kind of person that you were even born into. According to some people in our culture and world, you can, you can change everything about yourself. But not really. But in our culture today, we're totally autonomous, or so we think. And now that we live in a digital age, and we've been shaped and formed by decades of, uh, of capitalism and market influence, we've been sold this idea that the way to have the ultimate life is to experience everything that the material world has to offer. Create the life that you want. Curate, that's a cool word now, curate the life that you want. Buy the life that you want. Live the life that you want. The market is going to give you whatever your hearts desire. And because we essentially hold advertising uh, books in our, our pocket, we're being marketed to all the time. Through, the te- through all the media, television, movies, um, radio, your phone, the newspaper, there's advertising all the time that's just reminding us that we're discontent in who we are and that if we can just get the product that's being sold, we'll have what we want because to cultivate your own individual life is the ultimate standard. And so then coming together is harder and harder. And even the church can often buy into this market-driven approach. Look, friends, Wilden Presbyterian Church, we have everything you need. We have everything to meet your needs so that you can have your best life now. One guy I described it this way. He said, um, you know, think about this. There was a, an attempted launch by a rocket, and if you watch that launch, I, I grew up in Florida, so we would go outside and watch the space shuttle, and the space shuttle doesn't actually do the launch. There are these big booster rockets, and the booster rockets, because that most difficult part for the rocket to get out into space is when it's near the ground. The gravity is really, is, you know, it's got to have a lot of thrust and power, so they hook these booster rockets onto them, and the booster rockets then fall into the ocean on the space shuttle, and with with, um, with SpaceX, they can land back on a platform. But the booster rocket is a thing that lifts up the main rocket so that it can fly and be free. And this guy said, sometimes we look at Jesus as our booster rocket. Jesus, here's my life that I'm living. Just give me a boost into the life that I've always imagined that I would so long for and desire. If you can just help me to reach my dreams and to reach my goals, I would be so grateful to you for what you did. Just give me a boost. It sounds great, right? I mean, I need a boost sometimes, you know? (laughs) Three cups of coffee this morning, right? But the challenge is what the Bible actually teaches about the Christian life. The call to Jesus is to come and die. Not to launch yourself. It's to give up yourself. Not to find yourself. The call of Christ and the commitment to community does not fit into a curated life of enjoyment that's going to meet my individual desires. If Jesus is a booster rocket, if he's an add-on, then when real suffering happens in my life, as it often does, (laughs) the way of the world 
to the end because of brokenness, because of injustice, because of hurt, harm, and just the natural wear and tear of our bodies is toward death. Because we know that at the beginning, death entered into the world. And that it's only through Jesus that we can really find that life that we so desperately need. It's not by giving in to our market desires. And if my life begins to experience difficulty and challenge, then if I look at Jesus as a booster rocket, I'm going to say, wait a second, he's not doing what I thought he would do. But I have a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. Now, if I go and connect with this community and they're telling me they're going to help me to boost my life, they're going to give me what I need, what happens when I get into a disagreement with somebody at that church? What happens when there's someone there who has a different vision for what the church is supposed to be? It's, I better just find a new place. I just better find a new community of people that are more in line with what I think is true about myself. And so then I go and I shop and I shop and I shop. And it's just like I'm going, well, am I going to go to Kroger or am I going to go to Trader Joe's or am I going to go to Walmart? Where am I going to shop? I'm just going to go to that place that has the things that I need. You see how this happens? It's challenging. Now, look, I'm saying that you should find a community that proclaims the word faithfully, that desires to serve the community, and you found that. Here you are. But for too many American Christians, the idea that I just got to get the most out of it, that it's about what I need, is the driving question. Instead of the question, where is God calling me to serve? Who are the people that I can entrust myself to that even if I disagree with them, I know that they love Jesus so much they're going to be willing to tell me the truth about me and embrace me in the process. And they're going to do the same, allow me to do the same thing. Because we're committed. Because we're in covenant community. And then I recognize in my own life that I need more than a booster rocket. Because it's possible that my trajectory is completely off because of my own inability to see my sin and brokenness that I have a group of people that are around me that love me and are able to say, hey, Matt, that's not the direction that you should be going, and we love you. Are we willing to submit to one another in that, to experience it? So coming together today is much different than it was then. And Paul is including in his letter these multiple invitations for them to be the people of God. If he's saying that to them, boy, doesn't it mean that we need to hear it now because we live in a way more individualized culture than they did? Because they were together all the time. We need to be together. We need to be encouraging one another, inviting one another, and reminding each other of the great story of the gospel. And this is not, my friends, about church attendance, even though I'm glad you're here, and you should be here. It's about connecting with the body of Christ. It's about being in authentic relationship with people. And the way that we can do that is to set aside our differences for Christ's sake and for the sake of others. You see, and if we don't do that, the alternative is, is pretty discouraging, right? The, the rates of loneliness and isolation that exist in our culture right now, they're epidemic. It's a crisis. I mean, social media connections do not equate to a sense of belonging and hope. And family structures are disintegrating, and so we need to be the, the body of Christ. 
together. So Paul, is all, he's addressing all these things. Verse 18, he says, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. He's saying to these group, this group of people that he loves, you're not doing it the right way. Be careful because your actions are doing more harm than good. Verse, verse 18, he continues, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. Divisions, the word is schisma, right? Like schism or split or rift, something that has been rent. And earlier in the letter, he's been talking to them about divisions, about their concern. Who baptized who? And I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos. Instead of focusing on following Jesus, they've created these rivalries and these factions within the church. And so he says so boldly in verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's because there are these divisions and these factions. So when you're doing the thing at the table that you think you're doing, you're not actually even doing it. Because you're so divided as a people. The problem of division leads to the ineffectiveness of celebration of the sacrament because they are divided. They're not even drinking the cup. They're not even partaking of the bread because they've got reconciling, uh, reconciliation problems in their midst. Verse 21 shares the different ways that, these, that they're broken. He says, 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. We see the problem. Some aren't being considerate to wait. Others don't have enough food. Someone's getting drunk. Now, think about how they share the meal. And we have to do what we do because of our culture and our context and our moment. They, they weren't sitting in pews. <laughs> they were gathering for a meal, a celebration, a feast, regularly and participating. And in this, in this text, we learn that some are just going ahead and eating. Others aren't ensuring that everyone has enough. Others are imbibing too much and causing disruption in the way they do it. It's a me-first mentality. Whatever works for my family is the best, as long as I get what I need. It's not concerning to me that no one else gets enough. And so as we look on at the Corinthian church with dismay, we realize that sometimes for us we come to church and we say, well, what's in it for me? And let me, let me say, friends, look, there is something in it for you when you come, and you do want to be thinking about how does this affect my life? But I'm saying if you come primarily to say, what's in it for me, you're always going to be disappointed. Adrian Rogers once said, he goes, if you come to church, you can always find Jesus. You can always find Jesus if you come to church, if you're looking for Jesus. But if you come to find fault, you can always find fault. You can always find fault. It didn't happen the way I wanted to. He didn't say the thing that I wanted him to say. It didn't work out like I wanted it to work out. If you come with that attitude, then you're going to experience that. But if you come with a sense of joy and anticipation to meet Jesus and encourage others, you'll find Jesus. I promise you. And the only way that this can happen for us as a community is if we focus on Jesus and not our differences. Because here's the thing, I guarantee you, there's not a person in this room that you, that you agree with on everything at all the, time, all the time. And I guarantee you this, if you ask yourself next week, do you agree with yourself exactly from last week? The answer is no. We all change our minds on things. We can be convinced of other stuff. Right? I listen to um, sports radio, 
And, okay, so Dylan Brooks is on our basketball team, and he had a bad game last night. And so the question is, should Dylan Brooks be talking trash to LeBron James? I think the answer after last night's game was no. But other people say, hey, man, it's good. You can get under LeBron's skin, and you can do this or that. And so you listen to the radio, and you go, oh, I agree with this one. Oh, no, I agree with that one, right? How do you know? I don't know. Well, we're down two to one, so let's trade your strategy. But we can be convinced of other things. And here's my point. Let's not worry about the differences that we have. Let's be thinking about the the things that we have in common. And what's the most important thing that we have in common? That's Jesus. Look at these verses. Uh, Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. Think about this. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread. The sacrament that we celebrate that is a beautiful picture of the sacrifice of Jesus was instituted the night that Jesus was betrayed. Jesus knew that he was going to be betrayed. He knew what was coming, and yet he initiated that sacrament. He invited his brothers and sisters into relationship in such a beautiful and powerful way, and he knew that there was one sitting there who was literally betraying him to his death. What a powerful image that is. And so I know that when I think about the differences that I have with someone or the disagreements, even if they're of things that are important matters, it's not a betrayal. And here's the thing, even when Jesus was betrayed, he still invited people in. In fact, every one of those men was going to deny him and run away from him, and he knew it. And yet he said, I lay down my life. Brothers and sisters, to take on the character of Christ means to say, Jesus, I'm choosing to live as you, even though I cannot do it in the way that you've done it. I'm going to forgive. I'm going to reconcile. I'm going to love. I'm going to give myself away. I'm going to remember you in the breaking of bread, in the feasting. And as I do that, I'm going to remember any issue or concern or disagreement that I may have with my brother and sister. I think that what we need in our world right now is a church that's unified around Jesus Christ and not so focused on any particular issue. That's not to say that issues aren't important, but how are we rallying around Jesus? How are we coming together around Christ? The sacrament, when he says, this is my body, which I've given for you. I've given you my body. I'm shedding my blood for you. This is after he has prayed the high priestly prayer that talks about the unity that he desires for his brothers and sisters. And so here's what I want to do. Take a little pause here. Is there anyone in this room that has any sort of issue or difference that has caused hurt or harm in relationship with anyone else in the room? What would it look like for us to be reconciled to one another? Is there any other person in the world who's a follower of Jesus with whom you have a disagreement or some kind of difference that's caused hurt or harm to your relationship? We could could certainly honestly say, I'm waiting for that person to come to me. And that's an understandable feeling. But thankfully, Jesus didn't wait. Jesus moved first toward us. He came to us and he said, I want to be reconciled to you. I want to show you what the kingdom looks like. I want to show you what grace and love and mercy look like. 
And so then it's incumbent upon us to be the one to say, hey, I, I just, there's some tension here. There was a thing that happened, and I'm unsure. I want to talk about it because we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We are unified. Do you remember what happened on September 13th, 2001? Hundreds of congressmen and women stood on the steps of the Capitol and sang God Bless America together. On that day, and as a response to this terrible evil that had occurred against our country, they sang together, God bless America. One person said, one of them said, to celebrate the greater good that comes from serving one another and standing shoulder to shoulder and to carry on, come what may, to meet the unmet challenges and complete the unfinished work. For we are Americans and this is our place. That was Republican. A Democrat said, the memories of that dark day are in our shared history are painful. This was on a celebration, an anniversary celebration, a remembrance of this. They gave me hope as well. On September 11th and during the difficult months that followed, Americans showed the world how a unified nation can fight back against darkness and fear in the face of great evil. So many rushed forward to show great courage, dignity, and kindness. And here we are today, the divided states of America. Why? Well, as a nation, maybe we've forgotten what our purpose is, but this has bled over into the church as well. What does it mean for us to be united in purpose around the person of Jesus Christ? To say, hey, look, I, I love you, and I really disagree with you on this matter, but man, I love you first, because we are brother and sister in Christ. And the way I talk about you and about the differing things that we have is going to honor you because I honor Jesus. And we have a, a purpose that's more important than any of these matters, which is to glorify God and to make his name known in the world. Instead of focusing on our divisions and our differences, let's focus on what we have in common, what we have in Jesus Christ. Because you see, we face a terrible evil in the world today. And it's not as stark and as um, amazingly awful as it was on September 11th, but it's true every day. And children in our community are abused. That there's injustice that happens in our city. That, that husbands are harming their wives. That kids don't have enough food to eat. And we can do something about that as a united church. As people that say we love our community and we want to make a difference in it. And at the end of this passage, Paul goes on to say this. I'm going to finish up here. He says, look, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let that person examine himself or herself then and so eat of the bread and cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. So there's a thing that we talk about as pastors in seminary is fencing the table. Ever heard of that? Anyone ever heard of fencing the table? Anyone know what that means? So when we serve communion, we fence the table. Because in our tradition, we believe that only those who are baptized followers of Jesus, people who've made a profession of faith, should participate in the sacrament. But we don't say that no one who's not Presbyterian, a member of Woodland Presbyterian Church, can do it. Some churches say, you have to be a member of our church to do it. Other churches say, hey, we got communion in the back. Go back there and take it if you want to. But we're here. And we fence the table because we want to ensure that only those who should be taking it, take it. But we don't monitor it. There was a day, uh, 
hundreds of years ago where you had to meet with the pastor and share your faith testimony. And if you didn't know the Ten Commandments by heart, you wouldn't get a token. And you know what you couldn't do if you didn't have a token? Take communion. If you didn't demonstrate faithfulness in your life, I don't have time to meet with all y'all about all that. I'm trusting that you know who you are in Christ, right? But we fence the table because we don't want people to take a communion in an inappropriate way. And so a lot of times when people talk about this passage, they're talking about that. But here's what Paul says. Listen to this. If you take the, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Is it possible that Paul is saying also, in addition to us being rightly recognized or reconciled with God, that if we're not discerning the body, then we should not be taking communion? Because, see, I think in American culture, we've made an individual thing about me. Is it about me and my relationship with God? And there's always that component. But what about my relationship with my brothers and sisters? Right? There's a, there's a passage in Matthew where it says, if you are not reconciled to your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother or sister. That's how important it is for us to be reconciled to one another, is that we don't even participate in worship or the sacrament if we're not reconciled. And that's why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died, Paul says. If we're not reconciled to each other, then we begin to labor in vain. We begin to struggle. You can't do this life on your own. You need other people in your life. And here's the thing. If you have other people in your life, you know what's going to happen? You're going to disagree with them about something. That's just the way it is. And that's okay. God brings us with our different experiences and gifts and viewpoints so that we we can be the church together. And part of being the church together is learning how to love each other in Jesus in spite of the differences that we have. Maybe even because of the differences that we have. Because you see, when people use their gifts and they serve in a faithful way, we get to see God in a new way. So here's my invitation. Here's how you apply this. Here's how you apply this. I don't know. You have to figure this out. This is, where, this is your part. My part is to ask you the question. Is there anyone in the room you need to be reconciled with? Maybe it's the person you're sitting next to. Maybe it's the person who always sits on the other side. Maybe it's somebody in your family that you've had harsh words with and you need to say, I'm sorry. I want to be reconciled because Jesus is so important to me and because you're so important to Jesus. Whatever is important to Jesus is important to me and you're important to me and you're important to Jesus so I want to be reconciled to you. I don't know what happened. I don't know where we got off track but it's been so long I don't even remember. But I know this. I want to be reconciled to you. What if there were a hundred reconciliations that took place sometime this week? What would that do? That'd be an amazing thing. I would love to see that. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. If you send me an email, tell me, what hap- tell me what happened. If you were able to reconcile, just let me know so I can celebrate. I won't tell your story next week. I'm not preaching next week, so don't worry about it. But just let me know if there's a reconciliation. I want to be encouraged by that. I want to be encouraged by you and see what God is doing in our lives together. Let's pray. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Woodland Presbyterian Church, maturing God's people to serve a hurting world. Again, if you'd like to learn more about our congregation, please visit us at woodlandpres.org. Thank you very much, and God bless you today.